Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Well, good morning. Let's go in our Bibles. We're going to the Old Testament. We're going to go to 1 Kings 18. And we are in this series, The Divine Rescue. The battle belongs to the Lord. Now, let me just ask you a question as we get going this morning. Who doesn't love a good competition, a good battle? All right, so here we are in the Detroit area. Detroit Lions fans have been waiting a long time to defeat last year's Super Bowl champions in the first game of the season. It's been a long time waiting, some loyal fans, finally, right? We're, we're ready for this, all right? Teams, if you were watching the game on Thursday night, evenly matched teams back and forth. It was a contest. It made it exciting to watch. And it came down, and there was one point that separated the winners from the losers on that night, and that's all that matters. You just have to have one more point. It was a close battle, but the Lions ended up pulling it out. In all of the accounts that we have been looking at and we will continue looking at in this series, it looks like there's no hope in the beginning. At the outset, it looks like there is no way that the people of God have any chance at all. And when it's all said and done, it's not a close match. It's not a close contest. It's not, well, that, we eked that one out. Whew, good thing the clock ran out. That was close. Otherwise, we might have lost it. Every single one of these accounts of divine rescue are complete devastations. So far, we've walked with Moses out of Egypt and the delivery, the exodus. Then standing before the children of Israel was the Red Sea. And this is, oh no, what's going to happen? And here comes Pharaoh's army, and they've changed their mind. And then Moses prays and intercedes, and the Lord just opens the Red Sea. And the people of God walk through on dry land. And they get to the other side, and they watch. Pharaoh's army's coming after us. And then the waves just drop back over them, and they're annihilated. Then they make their way a little ways out into the wilderness, and then they begin to complain. And then the Lord sends the fiery serpents judging his people, and they cry out to the Lord, get rid of these serpents, they said. And the Lord says, actually, Moses, I'm going to have you make a bigger serpent and put it on a stake. And everyone who looks at that serpent, they will be healed. They will live. Look and live. Then we cross the Jordan River, finally. Finally, under Joshua's leadership, and they make their way to that first chief city that's devoted to the Lord, the city of Jericho. And the walls, it's just walled up to the heavens. And, and what do we have? We have quiet, walking around, and we'll praise the Lord at the end, and we'll shout, and the walls fall, and the Lord gives that city into the hands of the people of God, and it's no contest. Then we made our way into the time of the judges, and we met the mighty man... Gideon, out there threshing wheat in a sunken-in area, a depressed area. And there the angel of the Lord comes and says, I'm sending you, you mighty man. And the Lord is patient with him, and Gideon makes his way, and there's 32,000 down to 10,000, still too many, the Lord says. You're going to say, we did that. We did a great job. High fives in the locker room afterwards. 300 is all you need if they'll trust in me 
and they'll obey me. And that's what the Lord did. And through 300 and Gideon, he delivered the mighty army into their hands. Last week, we made our way into the time of the kings, under the united kingdom. And we saw where Saul was the king and David was the next and upcoming king. And there is the enemy, Goliath, and he is blaspheming God. He's cursing the armies of the living God. And the one person that stands up and says, this is not okay. This is not okay for him to keep on cursing the living God. And someone has to do something about this. And David goes out, and once again, this looks like a no-hope situation, but David's confidence is in the Lord. And he says, oh, you're going to give me into the hands, you know, and to feed me to the birds and the beasts? I'm actually going to feed all of your army today. The Lord will do this. And at the end of the day, there was no contest that it just wasn't even close. And there you see David hanging out in his tent, you know. <laughs> I love the commercials where, you know, different Super Bowl champions or whatever, and they have all the rings on their fingers, and they say, oh, oh these? You know, what, what are these? That's David. Oh, just that piece of armor over there? Yeah, yeah. You don't have one of those in your tent? No, I do. <laughs> and I was actually thinking about it even this week. He was actually a guy like, oh, you don't have a bear skin to sleep under at night. Yeah, I've, I've got, oh, you don't, oh, lion skin? Man, it looks really nice, you know, it fits. You need to get you one of these. You don't have one of these? This guy is just filled with trophies, and he understands, but it was the Lord. My confidence isn't in my own skill or my own hand, it's in the Lord. So you have a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a Bible, they are available. Take that. That's our gift to you. But I want you again today to have, we're going to cover some ground in the text. I want you to have your Bible open there before you. The proposition in this message today, fire from heaven, okay? Our proposition, 1 Kings 18, is this. This is what we want to unpack. There is no God like Jehovah. All right, some of you remember this song? days of Elijah. And there's a refrain when it gets to the chorus. And you can almost picture, you know, you can picture a whole team, like when they get low and they start building up and they start building up before they come out of the, the tunnel. And there's no God like Jehovah. There's no God like Jehovah. And they begin to write, there's no God like Jehovah. There's no, there's no God like Jehovah. And out they go, right? Out the tunnel. And it builds up. I want you to have that in mind as we unpack this message. There is no God like Jehovah, and it culminates where the whole story of Scripture is going, and that is the unveiling of Christ in Revelation. Behold, he comes, riding on a cloud. Can you do that? Shining like the sun. You can't do that, right? And every eye will see him. This is where everything is going. And so as we look back into the Old Testament, our goal is we want to study the record, study the account. We want to understand the lessons and then make proper application for our lives. So first of all, let's unpack. What do we see here? There is a national tragedy. Okay, as we step into this text, there's a national tragedy. So we have to examine this problem. All right, we need to do an autopsy on this problem. But then we're not going to just stay like self-righteous individuals. Oh, look how stupid they were. Look how bad they were. Oh, those awful people. Then we need to come to our day and we need to look around in our culture, in our nation. And then it's easy there to say, yeah, the nation and the people and those people. But we have to go one step further, loved ones. 
And that is we have to look internally. We have to look within. What are the tragedies that are ongoing in my own heart? Examine the problem. This dilemma that they were in should not have been a surprise to them, but they were surprised. God warned them of this. God told them exactly what he would do if they wandered off into rebellion. You're there in your Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 18. Just look at the first two verses. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, in the third year of this drought, saying, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. That's the capital of the northern kingdom. He involves a man who's in Ahab's army. His name is Obadiah. And Obadiah doesn't want to do this mission. He said, "Uh, you want me to tell Ahab that you're around, but then what if you don't show up? He's going to kill me. And Obadiah feared the Lord. Ahab, you go tell him, Elijah said, and I'll be there. I'm not going to lie. I'll be there. Look at verse 17. When Ahab, so they got this meeting together, saw Elijah, Ahab the king said to him, said to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? You troubler of Israel. And he answered, Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel, your wife's table. So there's a battle coming. The warning against idolatry was crystal clear in Israel's history. The Lord delivered his his call, his command to spiritual fidelity for Israel through Moses, many generations before. If you go back in your Bibles, go back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 13. Every king in Israel was to write their own copy of the law of God. Ahab should have known this, but I would doubt that Ahab did any looking into the word of God. It actually begins at the end of chapter 12, verse 29, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations... Moses is speaking here, whom you go in to dispossess, and you dispossess them and you dwell in their land. Take care that you do not be ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, hey, how did these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. And and this is the most extreme for they even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. Everything I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it nor take from it. Verse 13, if a prophet, or chapter 13, verse 1, if a prophet or dreamer of dreams rises among you, gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or a wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let's go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or of that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave every to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk so 
you shall purge the evil from your midst. If you have cancer in your body, you do not want the doctor saying, we're going to try to get some, but we really want to leave some of that in you. It'll kill you. That is what God is saying. This will spiritually kill you and annihilate you. Elijah is one who would obey the word of the Lord. So the warning was clear. They had it in the record from Moses. When you go in under Joshua and you conquer these nations, don't start checking out. Now, what was, what was their worship here? And Israel ended up doing that. So we see the warning. We also see then the rebellion of God's people was epidemic. It was epidemic. They heard, they knew, but they rebelled. The kingdom was united when we were in our message last week under King Saul and then under King David and under his son Solomon. But then it split after Solomon died and his son Rehoboam displayed an arrogant hunger for power as soon as he was coronated as king. That's in First. Kings 12, when that kingdom was split. So Jeroboam took the northern kingdom. He defied the Lord on all accounts. He led the northern 10 tribes into a full-scale rejection of all that God had commanded. See, the Lord's chosen place for his people to worship was in what city? Who can tell me? Make sure you're still with me now. Where was the city for Israel to worship? Jerusalem, all right? also known as Zion. Okay? That was the place where the Lord chose, and he set his name there. That was the place that the Lord chose where Yahweh was to be worshipped in the prescribed manner that God established. But Jeroboam, he took the northern kingdom, and he said, no, nah, we're, we're not going back to Jerusalem. Let's make, let's make this worship more convenient. Let's make it more seeker-sensitive. Let's, let's pull the people, what do they want out of church? And let's make it comfortable for them. That's what Jeroboam did. Have any relevance to our day? There are entire churches devoted to, what do you want? What would you like? What would, what, how old are you? What's your demographic? What can we do for you instead of the song that we sang today? We are here for... Did we lie when we sang that? Are we here for him? Are we here for us? Well, you'll know by what offends you. A map will come on the screen, and this is the, this is the kingdom. I've got the star on the city of Jerusalem, okay? This is a picture of the divided kingdom now. In the green, you have Judah, the tribes of Judah, and in the purplish pink, you have Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The next screen, the next screen will show where Samaria is. That's where the capital is, all right? That's where the headquarters is for King Ahab. That's where he establishes his throne and the center of Baal worship. The next screen will give to you what we're going to read in a moment, and it'll stay on the screen when we read this next text. There are two locations. One is way up in the north in Dan, and one is at Bethel all the way at the south. And what he does is, he, is the king wants to set up, Jeroboam wanted to set up a barrier for people going away to worship the true and living God. So he made it at the borders Wherever you live, just go nearby, but don't go back down into the southern kingdom. Don't go back down into Judah. That'll stay on the screen. Listen to 1 Kings 12, what it says in verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. 
And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now, if the king, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord. Now he's talking about elevation. If they make their journey back up to the city of Jerusalem, huh, well, they're going to desert me. If this people go up to offer sacrifices, verse 27, 1 Kings 12, in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So this is what Jeroboam said. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. Well, there we are right back at the golden calves again. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. That's the same thing Aaron said in the wilderness. And he set up one in Bethel. All right, that's the location right next to the star. And the other in the north he put in Dan. It's off the screen. If you have a map in your Bible, you can see Dan is way up in the north. Verse 30, this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. They could find it all. They'd go all the way up. They'd make that travel all the way up to Dan or down to Bethel, but just don't go to Jerusalem. The Lord gave the place for worship, and he also gave the pattern for worship, very de detailed. God commanded that the altar was to be very simple, nothing flashy, but genuine worship. And we just read how Jeroboam led his people right back into sin, right back into the premier failure in the wilderness, and he didn't just make one golden calf like Aaron did. He doubled it. He made two. Then he does something with the priesthood because the priesthood was exclusive. And, but Jeroboam, he didn't want to listen to God. And so he needed priests. He couldn't get them from the Levites. They're down in Jerusalem. And so in verse 31 of 1 Kings 12, he also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites, verse 32. And Jeroboam appointed feasts on the 15th day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month. And in that month, he devised from his own heart and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. You see the rebellion? They all followed him. They followed him. And where did this worship come from? His own desperately wicked heart. And he made a way for people to worship. And they're like, okay. And what he did is he just tried to blend the worship of Yahweh here, closer to home. What's more comfortable for you? Now, let me just make a note. For some who would say, well, it's more comfortable for me to just worship at home and not be in the fellowship of the body of believers, this speaks to you. We're called to gather together. The drought that God sent was extreme. This is where it's going. This is an extreme drought. Three years earlier, Elijah had prayed, and the heavens were shut. No rain means no crops. And here, when Ahab meets Elijah, he says, you're the troubler of Israel. It's because of you that we have a drought. It's because of you that the people aren't eating. You're the one that's causing the economic ruin of my nation. You troubler of Israel. That's the same warning that 
when Joshua was going in with the people of God into Jericho, he said, don't bring trouble on you. Same word. And then we find Achan, you troubler of Israel. The Achan was the troubler. And here's what Ahab, remembering history, you troubler, you're trouble. And Elijah doesn't buy it for a second. I'm not the one. It's not because of me. It's because of you. You're wicked. Now, King Ahab, was a, he was actually a, a powerful king. He did a lot for Israel. Economically, he advanced Israel. Military might, he had it. Pushed the kingdom out, expanded it, he did it. But you know how the word of God remembers Ahab? Not for any of his successes. Oh, he was such a good president. Look at all the things he did. What's his character? Oh, she was such a good mayor. What's her character? That's how God remembers the record. And so it dismisses all of his might and advancement and it highlights this man was a moral, spiritual failure. Without repentance. He was wicked. God doesn't keep the score the way men do. He doesn't look on the outward appearance. He searches the heart. Samuel had to learn that lesson when he was sent out to anoint David to be the next king. Ahab advanced the worship of Baal. He became an, an apologist, an evangelist for Baal. According to Canaanite mythology, Baal was the son of El, the chief god. And he was the son of Asherah, the goddess of the sea. So they believed that Baal was the most powerful deity, that he was the lord of the storms, he was the lord of thunder. So often there's a, there's a lightning bolt in his hand. This was a powerful god. The sun god, the god of storms, the god of fertility. This is how Ahab came to power. 1 Kings 16, if you just go back a couple pages. This is how Ahab, this is where he came from. This is how he got to this situation. Verse 29. 1 Kings 16. In the 30th year, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's a southern kingdom. So it helps. When, you, when you're reading through the record, you will see southern kingdom, northern kingdom, Judah, Israel. And it just helps you map who's king in the southern kingdom, who's king in the northern kingdom. In the southern kingdom, the reign of the kings was often longer because the worship was grounded in Jerusalem where the word of God is. The southern kingdom lasted longer. The northern kingdom fell first. The northern kingdom was filled with all kinds of anarchy, all kinds of rivalry. 38th year, Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. So that's the length of his reign. Verse 30. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife, there it is, don't ever name your kid this, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel. You hear it, you hear it in the names? Ethbel, the king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. 
He, in verse 32, erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. It's, it's a counter to Solomon. Solomon built a temple for the Lord in Jerusalem. Here's Ahab out here. He's got a house for Baal. He's got an altar for Baal. It's all in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Verse 34, in his days, now here's just a little note here. It's like a little asterisk, asterisk at the bottom where it's included in the text, in his days, in Ahab's days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. We just came through there. It's a subtle reminder with all of the northern kingdom following Ahab after Jeroboam, after Ahab's dad, Omri, and they're all doing whatever they want to do. But remember that when you came in the land through Joshua, the Lord said, don't set the city of Jericho back up again. Do never rebuild Jericho. If anyone ever rebuilds Jericho, they will lay the foundation in their firstborn and they'll finish it in their lastborn. And so here's a little note included in this text that almost seems like, what's this doing here? It's to remember God's word always comes true. Not one word will fall short. You thought that was just a passing by comment back there in Joshua's day? Oh no, don't dismiss lightly. Do not dismiss ever the word of the Lord. He always keeps his promises and Elijah knew this. And Elijah was a courageous man of faith and of prayer. You know, the saying that's popular, you know, Detroit versus everybody. People love that, like, yeah, Detroit versus everybody. That's us. But the reality here is it actually seems to be Elijah versus everybody. How did Israel get to this point? Well, we've been back in chapter 16. Look at chapter 17. In Acts, or not Acts, in uh, 1 Kings 17, now Elijah the Tishbite, verse 1 of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, this is three, three, three and a half years earlier, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall neither be dew nor rain these years except by my word. The word of the Lord came to him, depart from here, turn eastward, hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan, you shall drink from the brook... And I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. I remember one old preacher said, where did the ravens get the food? One old preacher said, I don't know this for sure. I think they swooped into Ahab's courtyard and took it off his buffet and brought it to Elijah. We'll find out when we get to heaven. It's not given here. But somewhere those ravens got food and they brought it. The first Uber service by air right there, drones. The Lord is way ahead of Amazon and anybody else, all right? So verse 5, he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. When Solomon dedicated the temple, he included the divine provision for when the people rebelled against the Lord and drought would come, he prayed in his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8. Solomon said it this, verse 30, 35, he said it this way, when 
Heaven is shut up and there's no rain. 1 Kings 8.35, because they have sinned against you. If they pray toward this place, all right, not toward Bethel, not toward Dan, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, not Elijah inflicting them, it's the Lord, verse 36, then here in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. So this was all provided. This was all there. They're in trouble, not because of Ahab and his prayer, but because of their sin. And the Lord sent Ahab, and he's a faithful messenger of the Lord. Maybe some of you remember 2007. Some of you weren't even born yet in 2007 and are in here, right? 2007, there was a severe drought across the south. Do you remember this? I think that's Lake Lanier. And, and the boats were just dry. I mean, they're just sitting on dry land all over these lakes across the south. And I remember at the, at the Georgia Dome, there was an event. I think it was a college football championship at the Georgia Dome. And they put monitors in the bathroom to make sure that people wouldn't flush the toilets because there was no water. And then the governor, this is the article out of the LA Times, that's the headline of it. Governor to God, send rain. <laughs> next screen, please. That's the prayer meeting. And the next day it rained, and the news stories dried up like the, the news stories just quit that so fast. They mocked him and mocked him, Governor Purdue, and mocked him. Governor to God, send rain. And then it rained. And they all went. In other news, can you look back and see Israel's national tragedy? Can you look around our nation and see a national tragedy? Can you see areas in your own heart, in your own life, where you and I are placing glory on lesser things rather than giving glory to God? the living God. Secondly, we see a monumental trial. Here comes the showdown. And here is where Elijah will expose the counterfeit. And when he exposes the counterfeit, he is not doing what everybody else is doing, and that's just complying, complicity. He says, no, actually, we're going to bring this to a head. So Ahab, you get all your, get all your uh, crew together and meet me at Mount Carmel. It's in your backyard, Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll fight unfair on my terms. We'll go to your backyard under your jurisdiction. We're going out near close to the water, up to the northwest, and I'm going to meet you on Mount Carmel. You bring it all. Bring everything you got, and I'll be there with God. Now, this is like a, a no-hope thing here, unless it's the living God. Verse 20, we're back in our text in 1 Kings 18. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered all the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping? Now, this is an interesting word. This is a word that's connected to the Passover, to pass over. And it's going to show up a couple times in this text. So when he's saying you're, you're limp, limping, you're going back and forth between worship of Yahweh blended with idolatry. And you're trying to push the two together, and you're limping between two different opinions. 
If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, small g, and I will call upon the name of the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh, it's Jehovah. And the God who answers by fire, well, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken, let's do this. Verse 25, then Elijah, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, y'all go ahead first. If he was from Kentucky, that's what he would have said. Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. Verse 26, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they, here it is again, limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them. Na, 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 na. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, right? Elijah begins with, we, excuse me, I will, I will rock you. He's by himself. He has nobody joining anything except he's a servant of the living God. And listen to what he says. He mocked them saying, cry aloud for he is a God. You got you to gotta take it up a notch there, prophets of Baal. I mean, you got 450 of you out there. It's not loud enough. He doesn't believe you. Cry aloud for he is a God. Either he is musing your God is somewhere just pondering. He's somewhere just thinking. He's somewhere and he doesn't want to be bothered right now. Or he is relieving himself. Now, this is trash talking. <laughs> Your God is out back in the outhouse. He's in the far country. He doesn't want to be found right now because he is doing the unmentionable. Or, I got it. He's on a journey. Your God took off. He's on vacation. That's why he's not answering you all morning. Or, he's got more. Do you, do you like this guy yet? Or perhaps, I know what it is. Baal is asleep. You gotta wake him up, fellas. Verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Loved ones, this is false worship. It's false worship, it's idolatry. And it is proven here to be worthless. There was an entire culture in Ahab's day and in Elijah's day that was devoted to idolatry. 
that is rejecting the true and living God. This is the wide way. This is the broad way. It leads to destruction. Their worship was pagan, but it was very religious. It was ancient. It was widely accepted. It was popular. It was filled with rituals, and it was filled with ceremonies. But here's the problem. God rejected it. It didn't come from God. It came from the mind and the heart of men. And when you look through all mythology, where do you find? Sex, power. Where does that come from? Not women. That comes from men. That comes out of the heart of men. And who gets ruined in religions that come from the heart of men? Women and children. The helpless. It always happens. Read your history books if you can still find one. Because we're living in an age that's trying to do it again. Their worship was misguided, yet extremely sincere. They believed in what they were doing. They were out there for hours, from morning until noon. They limped around the altar that they had made. Elijah mocked them and failed the friendship evangelism course. Some of us think, if I can just befriend a person long enough, if I can just be kind enough, if I can undo the wrongs of the church so nicely with people, then they'll like me and therefore they'll like my God. It'll never happen. Speak the truth in love, but you and I must preach the gospel. It's the only hope of people. And now as we're sitting here and we're looking in on these individuals, I want, you, I want to give to you a definition from Paul David Tripp about idolatry that might bring it a little closer to home lest we become too elevated over them. He says this about idolatry. It never works to ask people, places, and things to give you a satisfied and restful heart. It never works to ask people, places, and things to give you, to give me a restful and satisfied heart. Only God can give that. Their worship was popular, but it was deeply satanic. Demonic worship does literal physical damage to the human body. Demonic worship withholds marriage from people, forbids marriage, that is not from God. It's clear in Scripture. It is straight out of hell, blasting what God has given as a good gift to all people. Demonic worship like this ultimately ends in death. You see what these prophets are doing out there? They're crying aloud. They're wailing. They're going through mantra after mantra after mantra. Maybe some of you were brought up in a works-based religion and you were given, say this, repeat this, repeat this, repeat this, and repeat this, even though Jesus said, don't, don't do that. That's what the pagans do. You think that repeating those, you'll be heard? You won't be heard. You're, God doesn't receive that. They cried aloud. Then they moved in and they started cutting themselves. It's after their custom. They're taking swords. They're taking lances. They're bleeding. The blood is gushing out. It's a disfigurement of the human body. Hmm. 
to have a ring of familiarity of what is going on and you wonder where it's coming from, throwing our kids into confusion, sending them into some surgery somewhere to redesign them because what the creator didn't do a right or good enough job in his design in the womb? Where's that gonna end up? Right here, right here. And they rave on, they get louder, they're more emboldened. None of them are stopping. They just keep on and carry on. And there's more. But here's the problem. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's no living God behind this false worship. So here then we move into something hopeful and we see the genuine worship is proven to be glorious. There was on the hillside one prophet. And contrary to what Elijah thought, he wasn't the only one. But he was the only one there that day. The rest were hiding. There was one visible prophet of God there that day on Mount Carmel devoted to Yahweh. Elijah was on the narrow road and undoubtedly it was lonely. But in verse 30, he says to everybody, come near to me. Gather around. This is what God wants for his people. This is what we lost in the garden because of our sin. We lost the proximity to walk in fellowship with God. And so Elijah is calling people, God is inviting you to come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And this living God says, I will give you rest for your souls. Come near to me. Verse 30, and all the people came near to him. Put yourself in Ahab's shoes right now. You had all the people. And over there was Elijah by himself. There's the separate locations for the uh, altar for Baal and all the surrounding. That's a lot of people, 450 prophets, 400 of Jezebel's folks devoted. Uh, and they're all out there. Everybody's there. Everybody's watching. And then there's Elijah. And they've been carrying on for hours now. There's blood everywhere. They've been wailing, and there's not been one spark, and there's not been one drop of rain. And Elijah says, <clears throat> Hey, everybody, come on over. Come near to me gather around. And all the people, let's go there. They came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. You see what Elijah's doing with those stones? He's taking one. Wait a second. Pastor Wise, you just got done telling us there was 10 tribes and two tribes. There was divided right now. But that's not how God saw them. That was their own doing. That was their own rebellion. The Lord knew, these are my people. And these 10 are in trouble, and these two are going to be in trouble. And you read through the prophets, and they all ended up in trouble and in exile. But when the Lord looks at them, you're my people. But you're a rebellious people. And so there is Elijah, and whatever size the stones are, and all of the people are simply watching him, stone by stone, rebuild this very plain and simple altar of the Lord. And it makes me wonder, like, what is he saying? Is he, I, I bet he's naming every tribe when he puts that stone out there. 
I bet he's praying over every single tribe as he puts that stone there. And the people who are, what's he saying? What's he saying? Oh, that's the tribe representing Issachar. Oh, oh that's the stone representing the tribe of Judah. Oh. And he's watching and they, people know where it's going because they're remembering their history. We crossed the Jordan. We put 12 stones at that Jordan River to signify the Lord brought us through his 12 tribes. And we aren't where we should be. So he's building this altar in the name of the Lord. And then he moves on to move a, he builds a trench around the altar. You know, everybody's like, what's he doing? And there he is. He's like, you want to, who here wants to dig a trench? This, this is hard work. He's a man of God. I don't know if he has blisters or not by the time he's done with the, with the trench. But he's dri- digging this trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed, verse 33. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Burnt offering? That's just an animal laying there. Yeah. It's going to be a burnt offering. It's a burnt offering. In God's mind, it's burnt. And he said, do it a second time. Yeah, all right, mathematicians, you with me on this? We got three, you know, three times four jars equals 12. Hmm. He's on a theme here. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. See, this is genuine worship. It's not very flashy, is it? The sermon, he's not really being very cute. He's not really being very funny. He's not, he's not trying to appeal to people. He has a point to make. The message is from God. And there's 12 stones. This is what God prescribed. He didn't cut the stones. And then he's quietly laying the wood on the altar. And then he cuts. There's an animal that died that day. And all of the people, including Elijah, realize I should be the one being cut to pieces for my sin. And so there he cuts the animal and he lays it with care on the wood and he's laying it there and they think now he's done and now he's going to pray and and where's the fire going to come from? But he's not done. And then he says, now wait a second, I've got four jars and I want you to take these jars and take something very precious in a time of drought and I want you to go get water and I want you to pour it out on on this offering, on this altar. It's a time of drought. Where do they have to go to get this water? This is precious. This is, I don't live if I don't have that water, but you better pour it out because the man of God, the prophet of God said, pour it out on the altar. And they did. And there's water running all around. What's he doing? He's preaching, remember? Remember who we are? Remember our God? Remember the father, the God and father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Do you remember our God? He changed his name to Israel, 12 sons. Do you remember who we are? Do you remember who you are or have you forgotten and you think you belong to a God who does not hear, does not answer, and does not even listen? That is despair. That is what is being handed to this next generation in our world. Empty nothing. That is what is at the end of you need to be true to yourself. The further I go inside of me, loved ones, the more it's just contaminated. The more I know that I need the grace of God. I don't need more of me. I need less of me and more of him. So Elijah prepares the altar. He's saying, remember, and it's time to repent. Admit your sin of wandering from God and return. Come back. So here he 
dug the trench, put the wood in order, laid the bull on the altar. He's exposing them. He raises the stakes, asks for those 12 jars of water. Paul would write in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. That's what the people of God are to do. We don't take part. We don't join our voice to the common mantras because it's popular or you might appear to be unkind. You can't get to kind bypassing the creator God. So can you imagine the scene there on this Mount Carmel? It's a monumental trial. Everybody is now in suspense. They, they listened to these guys all day. They didn't get anything done. They're just all bloody and cut up and their bodies are disfigured. That's what Satan wants. You represent the image of God. He wants to mar that image, ruin that image. Over here, you have one guy. He's just repaired an altar and now the water is there and now, drum roll please, right? What's gonna happen? What's he gonna do? How's he different from what we've been seeing and what we've been brought into by this wicked king? That takes us to the third, the third scene of triumphal, a supernatural triumph. And here we can join with Elijah and exult in the God who lives, sees, hears, and answers prayer. And this is the God, the only God, who will deliver. He's mighty to save. It's a supernatural triumph. Verse 36. At the time of the offering of the oblation, It's three o'clock. <clears throat> it doesn't say it here, but I'm thinking three more hours it was carried on while he was building this altar quietly. Three hours of watching these guys yell and this guy rebuild the altar of the Lord. The time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me. O oh Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Does that seem like a real mountain moving prayer right there? Like he just says it. I wonder in your own prayer life if you think you don't pray well enough. I, I, I just don't think I, I, I don't say enough of the right words. I don't sound like other people. Do you realize prayer is just talking to God? He's not interested in, oh, Lord, thou that thyest and the mightiest. He's not. He simply is praying straightforward, Lord, answer me. Oh, Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, they don't know this right now, Lord, they should know this, that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Instead of turning them to slaughtered pieces, you are sending me to turn their hearts back to you. Then. Verse 38. Everybody say, then. Then. then right? This is where it all changes. I would imagine by now when Elijah starts saying something for the first time since, hey, everybody come gather around, 
that all the prophets of Baal stopped talking. They stopped chanting. They stopped going through their mantras. And they, what's he saying? What's he saying? He's praying. Listen. And they're leaning in and they hear, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. I mean, Spielberg cannot redo this one. This is, Lord, hear and answer me, that everyone will know you are the God who lives, and you are turning their hearts back, and fire, and it's gone. They, you see, it took three hours. This is something that wasn't a sleight of hand. This wasn't something that just like, I think Elijah did some tricks there. He's a real magic guy. They all watched him build this altar for three hours. They saw the animal, everything going into it, and then fire comes down from heaven and everything is gone. It's just wiped clean. But the people aren't wiped out. Just the sacrifice. This isn't random chaos. This is precision. Fire from heaven. And when all the people saw it, verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishron and slaughtered them there. Now I wonder, do you know there are many people who take offense. They side with all of the prophets of Baal and Israel and Ahab, thinking that, well, how dare God do that? Do you understand where that religion was going? Straight to hell, with everybody following, and it was the normal custom, everybody wide way. But Elijah was more devoted to the glory of God and obeying the word of God than he was to what people, their popular opinion or, or anything of that nature. Loved ones, the, God of, the gods of this world, small g, are distant and powerless to deliver. They are not able to bear up the weight of our souls. The gods of this world, they're distant. They're distant. They're powerless. They're impotent, we could say, to deliver. They cannot deliver. Baal, remember, he couldn't defend himself against Gideon. Remember Gideon's dad? Like, hey, you're serving a God and he can't stand up against, you know, my little old Giddy over there? You're going to serve that God? I think you need to reconsider, recalculating here. I'm not sure if that God is worthy. But Baal, the Lord of thunder, the Lord of storms, he couldn't produce one spark and they all knew it. Three and a half years, he couldn't produce one drop and he's the Lord of the storms. But the God of heaven, he rained down fire. And in a few short verses, he pours out a mighty flood and refills all the creeks, all the rivers. Baal and his prophets were defeated and destroyed. And ultimately, listen to me now, Satan and the gods of this age, the gods of this world will be defeated and done away with and everyone who follows after him. John 3.16 Perhaps the most well-known verse there is. It'll come up on the screen. And everyone loves this verse because it talks about the love of God. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, isn't that what Elijah was calling them to do that day? Believe in the living God. Should not follow after the way of the prophets of Baal and Jezebel and Ahab and all who reject this God. The word there is perish and you could substitute hell. In John 3.16, the love of God and you see the contrast of the outcomes of every human being depending on what you do in response to this one and only son that he said. You will either perish or if you trust in him, repent and trust in him, you will be given life that never ends. And on and on it has gone down through Jesus coming and this being proclaimed. And 1 John 5, the same apostle, same apostle that wrote Revelation, he also wrote to the church late in life. 1 John 5, 18, he said, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God um, because, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Verse 19, for we know that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. That's a graphic picture there of just the nastiest picture holding an infant and the infant doesn't know. Like the whole world is asleep in the arms of the enemy, the adversary, Satan. And they don't know. They don't understand. But here's what we know. Verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from anything not true idols. The human heart is an idol factory. The God of the universe, loved ones, in a strong contrast to the gods of this world, the God of this universe is present and omnipotent to save. He is mighty to save. And that day, Elijah was vindicated and the glory of God was displayed. The living God rained down fire. And after Elijah prayed, he poured out enough water to flood the land. Baal didn't do that. Yahweh did that. And as I've already said, the righteous judgment of God, it fell out on Jesus. It fell down upon Jesus. It was poured out upon Jesus so that it doesn't have to pour down upon you and upon me. Now, we've been talking about Samaria. We've been talking about the northern kingdom. Has anything come in your mind? Have you thought of anything as we've been going through this about Samaria and worship? And worship on that hill or worship on this hill? Who, who should we worship? Do we worship after what our fathers have given to us or is there a true and living God? And I kind of think you might be a prophet. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. And Jesus went into that same area, into that same region, and he had a woman to find. He had a woman to show love to, not judgment. She was there living with a man. She wasn't married to a man. She's committing adultery. She's committing sexual sin. And the Lord doesn't bypass that. He dresses, he presses right into it, and he hits the nerve, and he says, uh, the man that you're with, you've said, well, you don't have a husband because the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. Oh, I think you're a prophet. 
But what does Jesus do? He loves her and he calls her out of a life of sin. And he gives to this woman this word, this promise that is still continuing on today, that we all deserve to be like that animal. We all deserve to be like the prophets of Baal, slaughtered, because we're all sinners. We've all committed treason against God, the God of heaven. But what did Jesus say to that woman outside of Samaria, sitting by a well, who deserved to be punished for her sin? He said this in John 4, 23, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking you. He's seeking such people to, will you receive me? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done? Take Jesus at his word. He's seeking after worshipers but you must come to him. I've done my part. I've given you the record. I've given you the account. You have to respond. You have to respond to this living God who is seeking you. There was and there is a national tragedy, but we have to examine the real problem. And there was and there will be a monumental trial. We're to expose the counterfeit through confrontation, not complicity. And there was and there will be supernatural triumph. So we exult in the God who lives, sees, hears, answers prayer. And let me just ask these closing questions as we ready our hearts and minds to sing to this living God and to give back to this living God. What encouragement do you receive in knowing that God is seeking worshipers? How are you encouraged by that? that you and I, we should be annihilated, we should be punished, we should be executed, but instead he's seeking worshipers. How does that encourage you today? And the second thing is, what's your next step to guard your life from idols, from all that would rival in your heart and in your schedule against serving, living for the true and living God? How do you guard your heart, protect your life from idolatry? Take that step of obedience today. Let's stand together. Oh, Lord, we confess to you that you are good and you are the living God. Thank you for sending your one and only son so that we who deserve to be punished for our sin instead can take refuge under the shelter of his wing. Jesus, thank you for dying the death that I deserve to die. And thank you for living the life that I could never live. And then you rose back to life again and you offer that life. You have given it to me and you will give it to anyone who admits their sin. This is what has to happen, Lord, even now, is that a sinner will say, I am a sinner. I deserve to be punished, but I trust in Jesus. I confess Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I, like Elijah, trusted and rested in Yahweh. I will trust in Jesus, and you will give them life that never ends, and you will remove their sins. You will wash them away as far as the east is from the west. You are so good. You are so awesome. You are so gracious, and we simply worship you with hearts that are overflowing with gratitude, Lord. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' mighty to save name, his name is so powerful, we pray. Amen. 
Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.